Good evening, everybody. Uh, it's really, really precious to be together this evening. We're actually reaching the very end of a series that we've been working through the Ten Commandments. So this is the last message in the series, and I want to invite you to open up your Bibles, but please open them to Romans chapter 7. If you need a Bible, there are some on the table at the back, and in that particular Bible, you'll find uh, Romans 7 on page 1651, I think it is. We're going to go there in just a second. I'll read you a couple of verses from Exodus 20, which is where the Ten Commandments were given by God to Israel as a people. And remember that these commandments are the kind of the distilled essence of the law of God, um, boiled down to really just the heart, um, that if, if they were to keep these Ten Commandments, they would, uh, in a sense, be living righteous lives. And the rest of the laws, and there are hundreds of them, are an outworking, a kind of logical outworking case laws that are built on these ten and they stand as those that express the heart of God before they were given, after they were given, for all time. And uh, they're incredibly important as a result. And I want to read to you the last command and uh, a section from Romans 7 where Paul, the apostle, also quotes this particular command. And uh, we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us and change our hearts. So can I just begin by praying? Father, we thank you that it's it's your uh, precious gift to us that you've spoken. And also, Lord, that you've poured out your Holy Spirit as, a, as, a, as our help and comforter and teacher and the one who changes and transforms our lives. And so, Lord, we're coming to you as people who are in need of you right now. We want to, <clears throat> we want to open up our hearts and minds to your word and experience the power of your spirit to come and change us. I pray that you would expose what needs to be exposed, but also come and heal what needs to be healed, that we would be changed by you in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. Amen. Exodus 20 just says that God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Then he gave them the first nine commandments, and we come down to verse 17, the final one. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And over in Romans chapter 7, I'm going to pick up from verse 7. And Paul is wrestling with the whole issue of what the law does to the heart, what laws do to our hearts, and how we respond to law. And uh, verse 7, he says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, the sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. Through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Do not covet. Um, I think it's very hard for me to overstate the importance of this particular command among the ten. And all of them have their place. All of them are incredibly uh, incredibly piercing and exposing of our hearts in different ways. But I want to give you a couple of reasons why I think this one stands as kind of the capstone in some ways, the final one, why it rounds off and bookends the commandments and why it's so important and why God spoke as he did in this particular way. And I think one, one reason why this commandment is so vital is because of all the commandments, it's the only one which explicitly shows that sin is primarily a, a matter of the heart. Um, even before it's a matter of actions. Of course, this is how Jesus interprets the laws. He, he takes a commandment like adultery, and then he says we need to go deeper and understand that that comes from the roots of, of lust. And he takes a command like murder, and he says it needs to go deeper and understand that it comes from the roots of anger. And of course, Jesus' interpretation of the law is vindicated by the fact that the final commandment is explicitly about what's going on in your heart. Now, this is so important because... You can imagine if you were an Israelite at the time, you'd 
sat at the bottom of the mountain waiting for Moses to come down. And Moses came down with the, with the, the tablets of stone and began reading out the commandments. You could probably sit there and think, well, I could, I could probably manage these. Um, you know, I don't commit adultery. It might be difficult, but okay, I can sign up to that. Don't murder. Well, that one's maybe a little bit easier. And, and so you're going through and you're thinking, well, to, to, to obey these laws may be not so hard. And then finally, the last commandment drops on you. And it's the one that rings in your ears and remains in your mind uh, after Moses has wrapped up his sermon. is do not covet. And suddenly you realize that you're in trouble because whilst you thought that maybe externally you might be able to please God by your righteous living, if you really meditate on this command, you realize that God is much more interested in what's going on in, in the murky chambers of our hearts. And to be honest, I, I don't even know what's going on in my heart half the time. Uh, and here we are, exposed by the word of God, exposed by the light of his presence, exposed by his gaze. And this is a theme which runs all the way through the Bible. It's one of the, it's one of the most important tenets of Christianity, that, we're not, that, that the righteous life is not an externally lived life. It's not something that just seems obedient on the outside, but it's one that is transformed from the inside. And we're exposed by God's piercing gaze, aren't we? He's interested in the motivations and inclinations of the heart. So why Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, it's put like this, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And there's another admission. We, we don't even understand our own hearts. Who can understand the deceitfulness of your own heart? Because you can't really even figure out your own motivations and desires. You do things you don't even understand. But then it says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind and give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So this, this commandment is so incredibly important because God is saying, I look at your heart. What's going on in your heart? It's the most important thing about you. We all will stand before God one day and he will be looking at our hearts. Another reason why it's so important is because if you think about this and really give your mind to what's, what coveting is and what it does, you'll quickly realize that coveting is the kind of fountainhead or the root of so much that's evil in the world. Now take, I mean, most of, most of our media and, uh, you know, Luke referenced this at the beginning, but most of our kind of um, engagement at national and global level spins around what's going on in, in, in the world around money and economics and trade and all these kinds of things, doesn't it? And there are these in, incredibly uh, intractable differences of opinion on how these things should work and how the world is best run. Because all of us can see evils everywhere, things that are in unjust, problems all around the world. And you take a system like capitalism and you ask, well, what's wrong with that? Why does it lead to so much abuse of humankind? Like this, I was reading, um, there's a guy, there's a journalist who's brought out a book where he spent six months undercover working in some of the most difficult jobs in the UK, just experiencing what it's like to not be a kind of white-collar person doing white-collar work. And one of those jobs was he went into um, a warehouse for one of the major online uh, re, uh, retailers, where the warehouse where you go and pick goods off shelves and bring them back for them to be posted to customers and all these kinds of things. And working in that warehouse, he said, most of the time you're treated like you're a thief. You wear a, a GPS tracker that tracks how many steps you've done and reminds you when you're behind and prods you and tells you to, to be quicker and to speed up. You work seven to 14, you run, walk seven to 14 miles in a, in a given shift. And at the end of the day, you're so exhausted, you crash with a ready meal, terrible food, you put on weight, even though you're walking so much, you sleep little, and you're always at risk of losing your job if you don't keep up because they're tracking everybody's movements. And everybody's miserable. And you think, well, what is it about our, our capacity to make the lives of others miserable in systems which are designed to promote one-upmanship and competition and all this kind of thing. And you drill right down, right down, right down to the heart of the issue and you discover it's because mankind is covetous. And covetousness leads to all kinds of ugly things. It leads to greed. It leads to um, the desire to have for myself rather than to share with others. And so the evils that we see in the world actually so often are, are rooted in this. 
And yet, the opposite end of the kind of political spectrum, you've got the guys at the left wing who are saying, no, no, okay, so what we need to do is just take everything from the rich, which to my mind, again, is just a whole system based on covetousness. I want what you have. And so we're caught between this completely impossible situation of a world that we can't fix, primarily because all the evils that we're seeing in the world are heart evils, brokenness of the human heart, our capacity to hurt one another to get what I want. And if that's true at that level, how much more true is it at the level of your life, your day-to-day actions? That covetousness actually underlies a lot of the reasons why we do the things that we, we don't want to do. Even just going back through some of these commandments, you know, you shan't commit adultery. Why would you ever do that? Well, it's based on one of the roots of that is, is covetousness, the desiring something that you don't have. Why would you ever break the other laws? Often the root of it is covetousness. So what I'm trying to show you is that actually, I think God, God wanted this command to ring in the ears of Israelites and our own ears so we understand sin is a heart issue and that this particular heart issue is the kind of throbbing and pulsating problem which fuels all the other problems in our lives. So what I want to do in the time we have is, is look at it in three parts. I want to consider the problem of covetousness, what it is. I want to think about what the pure life would look like without covetousness. And then I want to finally consider the power to change, not to be a coveting person. So let's begin with the problem. What is it? Why is it so wrong? Covetousness is not, is not just desire. That would be a really bad misunderstanding. Uh, some people, some religions teach that desire in and of itself is wrong. That desire leads to evil. The Bible never teaches that. The Bible teaches that there are good desires and bad desires. And the right desires are important. In fact, necessary for a holy life. It encourages you to have the right, righteous desires. Primarily the desire to know God but also other desires, like the desire to have a spouse and to raise godly children and to, to create uh, work and all these kinds of things. They can be good, holy desires. But desire, at some point, can, can cross a bridge or can subtly move into something that becomes evil. And we know this is true. We talked about this a few weeks ago when it comes to sexual desire. That in and of itself is not a wrong thing. It's not wrong to desire um, sexual relations with another person or to find uh, someone sexually attractive. But it becomes sinful in biblical understanding when it becomes what the Bible calls lust, which is the desire to have sexual relationships in an illegitimate context, which means outside of marriage. And how subtly what was something pure can change into something that is corrupting and dangerous. The same is true of of desires around to have things in your life, what we're talking about, really. It can begin as something good, but how subtly it can shift into something evil. And it's so hard even to discern your own spirit in this. I, I, the reason I say it's so difficult is if you think about this, you know, you may desire something, but never think or never decide to take it illegitimately. You wouldn't steal it, for example. But that desire can be so subtly corrupting in your heart that maybe you, you work too hard in order to have the things you want. And suddenly you realize that the desire that was compelling you to work has become a corrupt desire because you're, working, you're overworking in order to gain wealth. And really what's motivating you in life was covetousness at the root. Or maybe if it's not overwork, then maybe it's something like a lack of generosity in your life. Desire gives birth to meanness and tight-fistedness. And somehow subtly it changed from a holy desire to pursue the things that God has given us to pursue in life into something ugly, something controlling, something that changes and corrupts and molds your heart. Or maybe more subtle than that, you, you you desire things but you make a decision not to attain them. You don't go after the things that you could have in life. But instead of that, you just think about them all the time. Things dominate your mind. And when they dominate your mind, they're the things you love. They're the idols of the heart. You can see how, 
how difficult it is to untangle your own desires, isn't it? Or you feel sorry for yourself because you don't have the things you want or because you've renounced them or whatever is going on. Do you see what I'm saying? So what we're beginning to see is that the problem of covetousness is a heart problem. This heart problem is very subtly and, and difficult, subtle and difficult to unentangle from, from our desires. Now, that may not be immediately apparent to you when you read this command. Because upon reading it, you probably thought, I've never desired my neighbor's ox or donkey. And um, it, not once has it crossed my mind that that is the donkey I need to make my life more complete. And of course, when God was uttering these commands, he's speaking in a way that made sense to them contextually at the time, right? Um, he's giving examples of stuff which, if you were an agrarian Israelite at the time, you might have thought, well, if I have that, that would make my life happier, easier, more comfortable. Just the ordinary day-to-day things that would, that would do that for you. So really what we need to do is ask, well, if that was true for them then, what kind of things would we think we need now in order to live a happy and fulfilled existence? The kind of things which if God was uttering the Ten Commandments today, he might, he might, he might put on black and white. And I think it, it might be things like this, that you, you may covet your neighbor's, your neighbor's good looks. Um, I've never been the object of that particular coveting, but that could happen to some of you. That you, you covet your neighbor's looks or their body or their skin or something, that their beauty, because in our day and age, being attractive means, makes it easier to get ahead, doesn't it? It means that you can have the life that you want to have. So you can covet something like that, or you can covet your neighbor's personality. Uh, you think, if I was a little bit more like this, then... I would have the life that I want to have. I would be happier. I would be more popular. Or I would be more successful. You could covet your neighbor's uh, gifts and abilities, particularly intelligence. You know, maybe being smart didn't count for much uh, when you were an Israelite wandering in the wilderness. Having a strong ox counted for much. But today, having an ox counts for very little, but having a high IQ counts for much. If you want to live a successful and fulfilled life, it can, it can propel you ahead and you can covet what you don't have. You can desire the things that you don't have that you think, if I had this, my life would be that bit more, more complete. What about coveting your neighbor's family? I mean, I think the commandment references this, you know, your neighbor's wife, but let's extend that. You want not only a spouse, but you want the perfect family. You want the children. You want the complete life. And suddenly what, looks attractive to you from the outside when you look at someone else's life and you think, if, I, if my life was a bit more like that, I'd be content, I'd be happy, I'd be at peace, I'd be at rest. And that is a form of coveting. Maybe it's possessions, whatever it is, success, favor, all kinds of things. And suddenly we realize that our hearts can nurture desires which begin to stir ugliness in our spirits. I ask, what is the problem then with coveting? I'll tell you what it is. For one thing, it's, it's that it becomes a sin against God himself. God is our Father. He loves us. He wants the best for us. When I sit and covet the things that I haven't got in life, I'm saying that God doesn't love me. I'm saying that I don't trust him. I, as a, as a dad, I can see this kind of thing going on in my kids' hearts occasionally. Kids have the, I mean, kids live very, very narrow lives. They live very small worlds. The only things that matter to them are their toys, their food, and their sleep, and fun with family, that kind of thing. There's very few things that matter to them. But if you take one thing away from them they really want, and it's like their entire world just collapses. They can fall on the floor weeping and rolling around. And it's like the world has come to an end because you didn't give them a biscuit or because they had the wrong cereal for breakfast or something like that. And as a parent, you know, this is exasperating, but you have to, in some ways, uh, come down to your kid's level and help them to understand that they're not always going to get what they want in life. And it seems ridiculous to us with 20, 25, 30 years more experience than them we look back and think, well, what, what's the big deal? 
But you think from God's perspective, that's exactly what we look like to him, isn't it? When we have a tantrum that we don't get the things we want in life. And he's a loving father, but we, here we are nursing our anger and frustration and disappointment, and desire, because we don't get the things we want, because we don't have the life we want. So really it's a sin against God. It also begins to turn into sins against other people. You might think, well, that doesn't necessarily follow. If I desire what my neighbor has, that can just remain a secret thing. They don't even need to know. Seems, seems reasonable to me. Except that, of course, when I desire what my neighbor has, it begins to affect our relationship in a thousand ways. Maybe I'm a bit more cold towards them. Maybe I'm a bit, more, a bit less sympathetic when they're suffering. Because there's part of me that thinks, finally, something bad has happened to you. Or maybe, maybe I'm a little bit less generous because I wouldn't give to somebody from whom I want to get something. Unless, of course, I'm giving in order to get, to manipulate them. You know, there's all kinds of ways that your relationships horizontally can begin to fragment because deep down you have unfulfilled desires. You want what you don't have and you want what your neighbor has. It's a root sin that gives birth to all kinds of things. And I think this is why Jesus, when he was trying to show us what sin, what kind of messy sins lurk in our hearts in, in Mark 7, he was discussing the whole problem of food and what kind of food we could eat. And of course, he was in a Jewish context where they had certain foods that were banned and others that were allowed. And uh, one of the things he, he says, is he says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles you. And he says, Mark says, by this, he, he pronounced all foods clean. And it's obvious when we think about it, we're not made dirty by food going into us. Even if some of our you know, most passionate um, social justice warriors want to tell us different these days. But it isn't the case. Food doesn't make you an unclean and immoral person. But he says it's the other way around. It's what comes out from inside your heart that makes you unclean. He says things like this. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting. And he lists some more things. I think it makes Jesus top 10, as it were, of the kind of wicked things that, that dwell in our hearts because out of it sprout all kinds of ugliness and sin, all kinds of corrupt ways of living. So this is the problem of coveting. You can't nurture these desires without, in some way, having a life that becomes corrupted by them. Let's think then about what the pure life without coveting would look like. The second thing, how do we... Run in the opposite direction. This is what we've been asking with each of these commands. Because I don't, often they're stated negatively. You shall not do this. But the principle behind the command always is that we run in the opposite direction. That God wants us to live righteous lives. And that righteous lives, can, we can paint the picture of the right, what the righteous life looks like by understanding it in opposition to these particular commands. And we've got to understand that when it comes to coveting, the other direction is a desirable place. If we didn't have coveting, I imagine that the world would be a place full of incredible and lavish generosity. You know, like the church in, in the early church in Acts 2 and Acts 4, it says they all shared and have everything in common. Why? Because they're not desiring what their neighbor has. Rather, they're wanting to give from what they have to their neighbor. I imagine a world without coveting would be a world where we don't pose and, and try and attain status based on because we're insecure and we need the admiration of others. Because if people didn't desire what you have, there'd be no point in posing. Instagram would be a very, very different place in a world without coveting. There'd be no need for it. And all the kind of posturing and posing and showing off that goes on there. Because if people don't desire your things, then you've no need to show them off. Whether it's your body or your possessions or your lifestyle or whatever it is. There'd be no loneliness in a world without coveting. Because we wouldn't spend all of our time trying to attain material things and competing with each other for those things. We would understand the value of relationships and of love and of community and these kinds of things. So you can see that really running in that opposite direction is an incredibly wonderful place to run to. Where coveting no longer controls us and no longer uh, corrupts the way we relate to one another. And let me show you a few things that I think the Bible teaches us about the life that is freed from and release from the power of coveting. Here's my first. I think that the Bible will compel you to foster gratitude. 
to foster gratitude. I came across this brilliant letter that was written to the Guardian by a 70-year-old lady. The 70, those of that generation were called the baby boomers. And I, I'm at the top end of the, the millennial generation, if these you know, categories exist. But that's roughly where I sit. And the millennials tend to be resentful of the generations that proceeded, and particularly the baby boomers, because the baby boomers bought all the houses for like dirt cheap. I mean, like, I, I think one of my relatives bought their house for 500 pounds, and now it's, it's worth obviously tens of, over 100, I don't know, 100 to 200,000 pounds. And, you know, they were able to buy houses for two, three, four, five thousand pounds back in the day, in yonder day, in the olden days. And now they're worth loads of money. And not only do they own their own house, but they own multiple houses and they rent them out to all the millennials who can't afford to buy their own houses. And so there's this kind of generational resentment thing going on. Or we, don't, we, don't, we want them to sell up and to whatever they do. Just give us the money and give us your houses, please. And uh, be kind to us, poor millennials. And she wrote this letter. Because, and the reason I'm reading it is because it just shows you how perspective is everything in these matters. And she said, most of us, speaking as a 70-year-old, she said, most of us grew up without central heating. I see bathrooms phoning from the only phone in a freezing hall, doing homework next to a single bar electric fire. Holiday accommodation, rarely if ever abroad, consisted of youth hostels or tents. Car ownership tended to be limited to enthusiasts with car maintenance skills. The purchase of clothing was a treat, and TV was a four-channel affair without remote control. I do actually remember that one, the TV with the buttons on it, four buttons, and you, you, know, you switch between four. Birthday celebrations held at home with the record player. Um, deaths on roads were horrifyingly higher. Seatbelts were unknown. Cancer meant automatic death. And you start to meditate on you th- those things. You think, well, maybe we didn't have it that bad after all. But of course, it's all a matter of, of looking at life through a particular lens, isn't it? And the Bible compels the importance of gratitude, because it says actually gratitude is one of those kind of foundational virtues. It may even be among the most important things about you as a person, particularly when it relates to God. And the reason I say, I, I say that, and it's a strong thing to say, is when you think about it, like what went wrong when Adam and Eve were tempted to take the fruit? Fundamentally, what went wrong was a lack of gratitude, wasn't it? There they were in a garden surrounded by an unlimited supply of everything that their hearts could desire. But somewhere, at some point, ungratefulness set in and they wanted the one thing that they couldn't have. It was a form of covetousness, actually, wasn't it? And it led to chaos. It led to destruction. It led to death. And it all began with a lack of an inability to say thank you to God. And Paul says the same thing. Romans 1, one of the most incredible, penetrating, powerful analysis of humanity at large. And in the chapter, he's wrestling with the issue of people who, the world outside of Israel, the world that doesn't know God. And he says they do know God. His power is revealed everywhere to anyone with eyes to see it. He says, it's not the problem, is not that God is not there to see. He says, the problem is a failure to say thank you. He puts it like this. He says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And that's the pivotal moment, he says, in, in human history and in the human heart, the micro level, the macro level. The failure to say thank you to God, the God who made you, then tumbles into all the evil he describes in the rest of that chapter. He says they, they become futile in their thinking. They start to worship idols. They, they start to give their lives over to all kinds of passion and become controlled by their lusts. He says it all, it's all can be stemmed back to, and you understand the, the heart of it was a failure to say thank you to God. And you think about the, the desires that lurk in your heart, the ones which you wish you could control. Ask yourself, what would it be like if I, if I turned that on its head and learned to say thank you for what I do have in that area of my life? Are you a grateful person? 
Are you fostering gratitude? Are you thanking God? Or do you rather feel sorry for yourself and allow that to kind of fester in your spirit? Because, friend, if you do, that is covetousness, and it leads to all kinds of sins. It's hard for me to overstate how important gratitude is because it's right at the heart of the gospel. What's a Christian? A Christian is a person who, instead of trying to work for salvation, says thank you for the salvation that Jesus gives. That's what a Christian is. The simplest way of describing what a Christian is is somebody who can say thank you. Somebody who can say thank you that Jesus died on the cross for your sins instead of trying to make yourself worthy of God's presence. So gratitude is right at the heart of holiness. The ability to live under the Father's care with joyful thankfulness in your heart. Foster gratitude. And covetousness will have no place in your spirit. Here's the second thing. What the pure life without coveting looks like. I'd encourage you to develop contentment. It's similar but slightly different quality. Contentment, when you imagine it, it sounds like a it doesn't sound like a particularly desirable quality because I tend to think that somebody who seems content seems like the kind of chilled out, passive person who sits there serenely smiling but with no desire to do anything in their life, just on their backside, right? You think, where's their ambition? Where's their drive? Contentment sounds, sounds deeply unattractive when you think about it like that. But in biblical thinking, contentment is, is so much more. And I, I, it's the very opposite in many ways because partly because of what it frees you from and partly because of what it frees you for. And here's what I mean. The contented person is a person who is freed from desires that, that would cause you to waste your life. Because you have a, a limited amount of energy, time, and resources. You're going to die one day. And how you spend the time between now and then, what you end up running after and chasing is a very important question, isn't it? And many people live futile lives, chase worthless things. It's a great tragedy, isn't it, of course? Many of us would waste a lot less time if we were simply content. Are you content? Are you free? It's what you're free from, but it's also this. It's what you're free for. Because in the Bible, contentment is not placid, serene uselessness. It's being freed from all the entanglements of the world so that you can live the most radical and abandoned life imaginable. Jesus is the great model of this. Perfectly content. He said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He, didn't, he barely had a possession to his name when he, when he was crucified. He had no wife. He had only the robe that he was dressed in when he was arrested. And he had no home. You know, it's, very, it's pretty hard to reduce from there to something less. I mean, the only thing less is being completely naked. He's freed from the control of desire and of covetousness. But does that mean he lived a serene and useless life. No, no, on the contrary. He was freed for total obedience to the Father. Since he wasn't wasting his life pursuing things that had no eternal value, he could pour his life out in obedience to the Father. That's what contentment can do. Contentment can turn you into somebody dangerous. Somebody with deep passions that drive you, but they're passions for God and his will and his kingdom. I think this is why when Paul's describing contentment, and he does in a few places in his letters, he, he puts it in the strongest language. He says, for example, in 1 Timothy 6, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain because we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content And later in the book of Philippians, 
when he's describing his own state of heart. And Philippians is really the most extraordinary letter because he has every reason to be a miserable man. He's in jail. He's in a Roman jail. He's in a Roman jail where he's tied to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. I mean, the guy has no privacy. It's miserable. But the letter is full of happiness. I mean, he is beaming with joy. And you scratch your head and think, how can this man be so happy when his circumstances are so horrible? And the answer really comes at the end of the letter when he says, I learned the secret of contentment. He knows how to abound and have plenty. Sometimes he obviously had comfortable living. And he says, I know how to abase. I've, I've experienced the worst circumstances in life. And then he says this crucial line, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, the contented life is the life that recognizes that Jesus is better than all of that. That he is superior. When you can trade everything that you have in this world to possess Jesus, you can be a contented person. And as I said, a dangerous person. A person who has passion and mission and purpose in life. Don't cover it because you'll waste your life. What a tragedy. Develop contentment in Christ and you'll be a free person. And here's my third tip. We've talked about gratitude, contentment. The pure life without coveting is one of surrender. Give yourself in total surrender. Because I think if we analyze this deeply, what we understand is that the essence of it is about control, about who or what is controlling your life. What drives you, what's steering you. If you have desires which become covetous in your, in your spirit, those desires will control your life. They will direct you. They will direct where you're going, what matters to you, how you spend your time, what you're in pursuit of. In other words, you become a slave to your desire. That's what the Bible makes clear everywhere. Desire enslaves us, ties us up, binds us. The opposite to that is surrender to Jesus. It's a voluntary re-enslavement to the Lord and Master who made you and total abandonment to him. It's saying, I don't want to be subject to this master, my evil desires, the desires which would control me and ultimately destroy me. I want to bring my heart under the, the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ and offer myself to him completely. Friend, the desires that are covetous will kill you. Ultimately, they'll, they'll hurt you, or harm you, they'll destroy your life. They'll certainly cause you to waste it. All kinds of evil things spring out of the heart that, that allows covetousness to sit there in, in its squalor. You think about how much time and energy is wasted in the pursuit of material gain which we don't need. How many people sit in self-pity because of the things they don't have and live wasted lives because of feeling miserable and sorry for yourself? And how many people end up running away from God because of desires that they felt he didn't grant them? I've, I've, lost, count, I've lost count of the number of people who, who, who for the reason they started to run away from God was because of a sense of resentment that God wasn't giving them what they, what they wanted. And one of the most potent versions of this is the person who wants a spouse. And God hasn't given you the spouse yet. And you feel miserable and sorry for yourself because you're single. And you don't understand that Christ might have a purpose in your singleness. He might have a wonderful purpose and plan in your singleness. But instead, you've wasted your time in covetousness, desiring the life that other people seem to have and that you can't have. It turns into resentment against God, and you run away from him. And what you don't realize is you're a slave. You're a slave to your desires. The other side to that, friend, is understanding that the life lived in surrender to Jesus is the free life. 
I want to finally talk to you about the power to stop coveting. We talked about the problem. We talked about what the pure life would look like without coveting. But really, we need to dig a little bit deeper and understand that fundamentally, we need power to change. How do our hearts change? Thinking back across the whole series, but I think this message in particular, and this, this particular command brings us to light. We experience the problem of being told by the law what is right or wrong, but our inability to change ourselves. And I think that's why Paul talks as he does in Romans 7, that passage we read right at the beginning. See, the law is like a spotlight shone on your heart. Don't covet. And with the Holy Spirit's work in the law, you suddenly feel your heart opened up to God and you sense I'm, I'm a person full of sin. And it's a little bit like that sense of exposure when you step through those metal detectors in airports or those full body scanners where you have to stand like this and have your whole body scanning. You feel, you feel exposed to God's all-seeing gaze. And that's what the law does. It, it brings to light there's, there's problems in your heart, problems that you maybe weren't aware of before or were vaguely aware of, but the law starts to pin them down and show you the ugliness that's inside. But the problem is the law, it can't change you. Even if it exposes you, it can't change you. And I think this is why Paul talks as he does in Romans 7, in that passage we read at the beginning. When he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Which means that for me as a preacher, for all of us seeking to live lives that are more godly, the easiest thing might be to say, well, look, here's the list of things that we need to change in. Let's just work on them all. One at a time, until we change into glorious versions of ourselves, your best life now. But the Bible says there's no such thing really as the self-help in the Christian life. And there's really no such thing as learning a set of rules that are going to change your heart. And especially when it comes to the murkiness of desires. The heart is deceitful above all things, isn't it? Why is that? Well, the answer shouldn't surprise you, but very few people understand this correctly. The answer is the systemic problem in our nature, which the Bible calls sin. The Bible doesn't just talk about sins as behaviors, because you can change your behaviors to a certain extent, can't you? It doesn't talk just at that level. It talks about something much deeper, something much more deep-rooted, something much more systemic. It talks about sin in the singular. So while Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross for our sins, he was also crucified for our sin. He became, the Bible says, sin for us when he died on the cross. The law can't change you. But we don't blame the law. It's not, the problem is not with the law. The problem is what the Lord does when it meets with the sin of the human heart. Here's how Paul expresses it. He says, did that which is good, meaning the law, bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through, that what is good, through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And really what I'm trying to help you to see is that at some point when you reflect on on the problem of your heart, the heart you can't control, the desires you don't know how to harness and change, at some point you have to reach a recognition of your hopelessness that you can't change yourself. Because then there is hope for you. The Bible teaches us that there is an answer to this problem of sin. It's what the gospel promises you, the good news of Jesus Christ, which is that he can give you a new heart and he can give you new desires. In the Old Testament, they use a language of changing the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. 
that that thing which was so impossible to deal with and to change can become alive to God. That's the promise of the gospel. Just over in Romans 8, a little bit later, Paul puts it like this in verse 3. He says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. It doesn't matter how much, in other words, you try and change yourself. You will not be able to do it because the law and your flesh are a very terrible mix. All it does is produce more sin in you. You get told what you're not allowed to do, and suddenly you find yourself wanting to do that very thing, thinking about it all the time, fighting with it and wrestling with it constantly. It's dominating your life. The law can't do it, but God, sending his son, achieves something for us, he says. He says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. In other words, God's promise to you is absolute transformation of your life. God doesn't want to leave you in the mess he found you. He wants to change you from the inside. It begins with surrendering your life to Jesus, receiving his forgiveness. And that's accompanied with the Holy Spirit rushing into the chambers of your heart and just beginning to reorganize things. And he starts to replace bad desires with good ones. He starts to uproot all the ugliness of your covetousness and all the other stuff that's going on inside you and starts to put in its place a holy desire to know God and to become like Jesus. And none of it's produced by you. It's the work of God upon you. You surrender to that process rather than become the chief actor in the process. Jesus can change your life is what I'm trying to say to you. He can give you new desires. He can give you a new heart. And so I want to end this message and this series by just asking you the questions. Do you feel that you need a new heart? Are you aware that you've been unable to change your life up to now and you've reached a point of hopelessness where only God could change you? Are you aware that God sees into your heart that there's sin in there that you need forgiveness from. Are you aware that you need to feel forgiven? Do you need a new start? If it is true of you, and you're not sure that you're a Christian, but you would like to experience the power of God to begin to move in and start to change your life, it would be my privilege to pray with you this evening if you want to. But it may be appropriate for you just to have dealings with God yourself right now. I want to lead us in prayer. The guys are going to come up and lead us in worship also. And we're going to take communion in a few minutes. But I want us to have a couple of moments just to respond to God personally in prayer from our seats. Some of you, you know that you belong to the family of God. That you're a Christian. That you feel that God has begun that transforming process. Uh, that transforming power in your life, that work of change in your life. But you're also aware, just thinking tonight, that, there are, that, that really at the root of some of the problems in you, are, there is a covetousness that has, that has resulted in other sins. You're imagining that that life would be better than this life. And it produces all kinds of discontentment and ugliness in you. And you, there's something you need to repent of tonight and I encourage you to have dealings with God right now. It's important that we name it for what it is when we want to repent, that we're very specific about the things we need to repent from. Lord, this is what I've been desiring too much and it's become something ugly in me and it's resulted in all of this kind of ugliness and and wickedness. Name it for what it is and bring it into God's light so that he can forgive you and change you. But if you're not a Christian and you think, I need to know this transforming power in my life for the first time, I want to encourage you to approach God right now in your own heart in prayer. And it's very simple to do so. It begins with just a simple admission. You can think of it as ABC, just admitting that you're in the wrong. Nobody comes to God unless they come like a child or they come humble. 
There's nothing more basic than that for the Christian than recognizing that you're in the wrong. And then the B is to believe that God has taken your sin and nailed it to the cross where Jesus died for you. That he can lift your sin and all the guilt and all the shame off your shoulders immediately that you'd never have to feel condemned again. And the C is to confess that Jesus is the Lord of your life. To say, I want, to, I want Jesus to be my master now. I want to live for his service. Whatever it takes, wherever you want, whatever you want to do with me, I want to live for him. And if you feel that you could make that commitment to God tonight, I want to encourage you to do it right now. As the Bible says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. There's always the opportunity right now, but you never can guarantee the opportunity will come again. And God wants you to be responsive. So let me leave just a couple of moments of quiet for each of us to respond to God in the way that we need to. Why don't we stand and pray together? Father, we thank you that you created us for great desires. To know you, to be sons and daughters of God, to experience the joy of surrender to your will so that we could exercise authority in life and know what it is to live dignified lives under the will of the living God but how easily our hearts are seduced by corrupting lesser desires. Oh God, I pray that you would enable us to see where they lurk in our hearts so that we can repent of them, uproot them, bring them to you, and experience your freeing power to live in abandonment to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.